we're going to read the Bible together. Bob's going to come and read Psalm 149. Good morning, we're reading Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the hum humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in their honour and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Bob, for reading. And good morning, everybody. It's great to see everyone here and I'd like to add my welcome to Mark's, especially those of you online, and maybe even John and Sinead, if you're tuning in from quarantine. Um, Mel and I know what you're going through. <laughs> and you can keep your Bibles open if you've got them. Uh, Psalm 149, uh, that would be really helpful. So my name, if I haven't met you, as Mark said, is Clayton, and just to be certain, I am not one of the pastors here, so the pastors are taking a very well-earned break from preaching this month, and so we're going to be continuing um, our mini-series in the book of Psalms. Now, Rod began this series last week by looking at Psalm 2, and Rod ended his sermon um, I think with a really powerful message um, to us, where he was saying Christianity isn't about having Jesus on our terms, rather it's about Jesus having us on his terms. And I think that's a great reminder to us that we don't get to pick and choose the bits of the Bible uh, that we like as though Christianity was some kind of menu in a cafe, uh, but rather it's more like the gym, uh, where joy comes from the hard work of lifelong obedience to the King. Now, today we're going to be jumping from the second psalm all the way to the end to the second last psalm, Psalm 149, where really the message of Psalm 149 isn't a whole lot different from that of Psalm 2, but I'm sure you noticed as it was read that the language uh, makes us work a little bit harder than it does in Psalm 2. So as we approach this psalm, why don't you pray with me as we ask for God's help uh, to understand this psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sustaining us throughout 2020 that has just ended, and we praise you for 2021 that has just begun. We praise you for you are the same God from before creation, 
the same God when Psalm 149 was written and you're the same God today. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to help us understand your word and to apply it to our lives. Please help me to speak clearly and faithfully from your word and may my words be your words and may you encourage, rebuke and challenge us today as we need. We ask this in the name of our everlasting King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, some of you may have heard of the BBC Proms, which has been running in London since 1895. And every summer, there's over eight weeks around 70 or more classical music events. And people come from all over the world uh, to hear these um, concerts. And some are even willing to stand about three levels right at the very top for the duration of the concert. And some of these concerts will last for more than three hours. And this will be at the top, as you can see on there, from the Royal Albert Hall. Now, being classical concerts, everyone is, of course, suitably dressed uh, in their neat and best attire, and they behave themselves throughout the whole evening. But then the final night of the proms comes around. And on this night, all the rules of attending classical music concerts are thrown out the window as there's flags and balloons are encouraged and they play music, uh, movie themes and hymns and singing is also brought into the program for a night of pure celebration. Now, the final night of the proms is what comes to my mind as I read through the final group of psalms, Psalms 146 to 150. These psalms all begin and end with the exclamation, Praise the Lord! Now, together, these end the book of psalms in a triumphant finale with God's people joyfully praising God. Yet amidst all this praising of our great and loving God, lies a psalm with a history. A psalm of praise that's been used countless times to justify acts of violence under the guise of God's mission. A psalm of praise that's been used as a catalyst for war. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's take a quick walk together through this group of psalms. Psalms 146 to 150, and you may want to just cast your eyes over them as we not really walk, as we run through these psalms. So Psalm 146, praise the Lord, for the Lord reigns forever. Psalm 147, praise the Lord, for the Lord is the great creator. Psalm 148, praise the Lord from the heavens and from the earth, for the Lord's name alone is exalted. Psalm 149, praise the Lord, for his people execute vengeance on the nations. Psalm 150, let everyone everywhere with everything praise God, praise the Lord. Now, question time, and this may reveal your age, or at least it may reveal my age, but did anyone here grow up watching Sesame Street? Or maybe your kids forced you to watch Sesame Street. Good, good, I'm not alone, there's a few. <laughs> now, one of the segments I've always remembered 
uh, from Sesame Street was one where there was always three children doing the same activity, you know, such as holding up an umbrella in the rain. And then there'd be the fourth child that'd be doing something different from the others, like wearing a hat instead of an umbrella. And there was this song that went, three of these kids belong together. Three of these kids are kind of the same, but one of these kids is doing his own thing. Now, I'm sure as Bob read Psalm 149, your finely tuned senses alerted yourselves to this psalm being different. Now, what's with the two-edged sword that God's people are to hold in their hands? Now, on whom is vengeance, is punishment and retribution, to be executed? Now, one of these psalms is doing its own thing. So let's see if we can understand this psalm together. So the first point is present reality. Rejoice and praise God, for we have been saved. So look at verses 1 to 5. So in verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Now this is not an invitation, but rather it's a call. It's a rally cry, it's a command for God's people to praise the Lord. And we're to sing to the Lord a new song. Now, a new song has more to it than just simply coming up with new lyrics or perhaps putting a new tune to an old hymn. So in Psalm 137, Israel cried out, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And it continues, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? See, Israel couldn't sing their old songs of joy to God because they were in captivity under the Babylonians away from home. But in this final group of psalms, God's people are no longer in captivity. They're no longer in exile, but they've been brought home. See, this psalm was most likely written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the late 5th or early 6th century BC, uh, 4th century BC. So when God had brought Israel out of exile and they were rebuilding Jerusalem. So this time was a new beginning and therefore a new song was called for to praise the Lord. And we'll see this again when we turn to the last book of the Bible in Revelation in chapter 5, when we're looking into the future when there's the Lamb, who is Jesus, will take hold of the scrolls and those with him in the heavenly realms will again sing a new song. So new beginnings call for new songs. And verse 1 is a call to praise. And in our praise, we're to rejoice in the Lord. And if you look at verses 2 to 5, you'll see verse 2 itself is overflowing with things for us to rejoice over. So let Israel be glad in his maker. See, God made Israel not as individuals, but he made them into a nation. And in a similar way, God didn't bring us as individuals into the Illawarra region, wherever it is that we live. He brought us into fellowship here at WBC. 
Israel were to rejoice in the God who brought them out of exile and who was still their king. This verse has echoes of Zechariah chapter 9 in verse 9. And let me read that for you. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. See, Israel were to rejoice in God, in God who is their maker and who is their king. And we today, as the true Israel, the true children of God, we rejoice not only in God, but in his appointed king in Jesus Christ. The prophesied king of Zechariah has come. The long-hoped-for king of Psalm 2 that we heard about last week has come. And we've only just celebrated his coming a week ago at Christmas. So because of Jesus, we are the true children of Zion. We are to be glad in our maker and rejoice in our King Jesus. Now rejoicing is one of those things that we're to do as God's people. And in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4, the Apostle Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord always, I say to you again, rejoice. We're to do this all the time. So it's not just something we do here at church on Sundays. It's not something we do during the week at Bible studies, but it's something we're to do all week, wherever we are, whether we're at university, at school, at home, at work, where we're with our children, even if we're sick or whether we're in perfect health, we're called to rejoice regardless of how we might feel, whether we're happy or sad, angry, sick, disappointed, rejoicing is more than just a state of mind or a feeling. I think our emotions, they can be useful guides for us at times, but they can also be terribly unreliable. They can change as the wind blows. But we rejoice because of who we are to God. So we rejoice because of who we are to God. But when we read verse 4 in Psalm 149, we may at times just scratch our head and ask the question, does God really delight in his people? When we look around at the world today, does he really delight in us? Well, I think left to our own devices, I think I have to say honestly, no, God doesn't delight in us because we naturally reject him and we go our own ways. But if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Saviour, then you are beloved by God. And yes, God absolutely delights in you when you delight in Jesus. That's why rejoicing isn't something we do because we feel loved by God. It's something we do because we are loved by God. Regardless of our emotions, this fact remains true for all who believe and follow Jesus. Rejoicing, therefore, is praising God for who he is and for what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And I think verse 3 gives us such a wonderful picture of how we can rejoice. We see this picture of with dancing 
with tambourine and with harp or lyre. Now, the tambourine suggests this was not meant for temple worship. So this wasn't something they only did when they went to the synagogue. This was an extra celebration. So this was a time when the whole people of Israel would corporately praise God, rejoicing together as the assembly of God's faithful people. It's worth noting that things weren't so great for Israel at this particular point in their history. They had to rebuild Jerusalem and they had to do so under the constant threat of attack from oppressors. But they were once again in God's holy city and they were God's children and so they had much that they could rejoice over. Now, COVID restrictions have limited how we're able to do this corporately um, for most of 2020 and even now, again, going into 2021. But it gives us some food for thought as this psalm paints a picture of corporate, joyful praise of our Creator. Now, how can we at WVC corporately praise our God under these restrictions? Now, we're not allowed to sing in church now so how else can we encourage one another in praising our Creator God? And when restrictions are lifted, will we all long to be together again in joyful fellowship and praise as the assembly of God's faithful people? So I think this psalm asks some good questions of us uh, during these difficult times. Now, a few years ago, Mel and I visited South Africa and we were taken by our friends to visit a township outside of Cape Town, um, quite a poor and quite a, a dangerous place um, to be if you're not taken in there by a local. Now, the family there were quite, quite a funny family, and they wondered at one point in time why white people are so unemotional when we sing our hymns. She said, white people have written the greatest of him, some of the greatest words of praise of our God that have ever been written. Yet when we sing, we barely show any emotion whatsoever. And she laughed and she said she, she was sure that we were chosen, as in that we were saved, but she called us the frozen chosen. <laughs> and I think there's some truth to that. Now, I'm not suggesting we adopt a proms-like attitude, um, atmosphere of dancing and flag-waving and all the rest of it that goes with the final night of the proms. But Psalm 149 does paint a lively picture of Israel's praise of God. So the question we need to ask is, do we need to be thawed out a little to somehow show outwardly what God has done for us through his only Son, to save us. So, brothers and sisters, we deserve nothing, but God has given us everything. By His grace, He calls us to be His people, and so we can but humbly come before Him and praising Him, Him who crowns the humble with salvation. See, what a truly amazing God we have who is worthy of our joyful praise.
So let his faithful people, and that's us, let his faithful people rejoice in this honour and sing for joy on our beds. So whether we're at church, whether we're out and about in town, whether we're at home, even if we're in bed, let's rejoice in our God who by his grace has saved us. But things start to get a little bit tricky from verse 6. So our second point is future promise. Rejoice and praise God for the nations will be judged. So future promise, rejoice and praise God for the nations will be judged. And we'll look at verses 6 to 9. Now verses 6 to 9 seem to be a prayer for judgment. Now the camera has now panned out from the people of God and it swung around and zoomed in on a very different group of people. And I'm not actually pointing you guys as the nations, sorry. (laughs) So a very different group of people are now in focus. Ones who do not acknowledge God as their Lord and who do not acknowledge Jesus as their King. Now these people are not crowned with salvation, with victory like God's children are in verse 4. But rather soberingly, they have vengeance and punishment put upon them in verse 7. Their kings and nobles are bound and restrained in chains in verse 8 and judgment will be executed on them in verse 9. This is a vastly different picture from verses 1 to 5. But the real surprise in these verses is verse 6. Remember how we've just been praising God for these wonderful words in verses 1 to 5. Well, while these praises are in our mouths, in our hands are two-edged swords ready to execute judgment. The picture here is at at first alarming and, I have to say, somewhat uncomfortable. Is it really our job to execute vengeance and judgment on God's enemies? Do we really have free reign to execute revenge on whoever we perceive to be against God? And all of this is with God's blessing? Is this the Bible's version of some kind of jihad, like holy war? Well, between 1524 and 1525, Thomas Munzer used these verses to stir up the German-speaking non-aristocracy in Central Europe against the nobilities in what became known as the Peasants' War. Now, it's thought that up to 300,000 people died in this conflict. Between 1618 and 1648, Caspar Sclopius used these verses to inflame the Roman Catholic princes in the Holy Roman Empire against the Protestant states in what became known as the Thirty Years' War. Now, this war very quickly moved on from religion and just became about possessions and land and everything else. But Psalm 149 was the rallying cry behind the uprising that ultimately would go on to claim the lives of around 8 million people. See, this psalm of praise has been used in spilling much blood in the name of God. 
that those who use this psalm to justify revenge and war and murder have not thought about the rest, what the rest of the Bible teaches us. See, we can never interpret parts of Scripture in isolation. The whole Bible is one story. So we should never read the Old Testament now without having the New Testament in mind, which is why I really encourage all of us to be reading all of our Bible. So don't just read the bits we like, don't just read the New Testament, let's be people who read the whole of God's Word. Had these people known their Bibles, then they would have known that Romans 12 teaches us to live peaceably with all, where possible, never avenging ourselves, but leaving the such things to the wrath of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 tells us that vengeance is God's. Jesus himself teaches us not only to love our enemies, but also to pray for them. And he even told Peter to put down his sword when he was being arrested in the garden. And one key passage for us, and if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. So the Apostle Paul writes, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So in these verses... Paul is taking the Old Testament terms of political and national warfare and he's reinterpreting them in light of the new covenant that we are now a part of in Christ. So in the Old Testament, you can read um, about certain times when there was a literal call for God's people to take up the sword and fight the enemy. Now we can read about this in such books as Joshua, as they captured the promised land, as in the book of Judges, when Israel were defending themselves from attack. King David against the Philistines, even Nehemiah had to defend himself against oppressors, and also the Jews in the book of Esther. So in the past, there were very specific particular times when it was necessary for God's people to take up arms. And while well, you've got your Bibles open, if you jump ahead to Revelation chapter 19. So Revelation chapter 19, right up near the end of the Bible. And we'll read from verses 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, 
riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it seems Psalm 149 verses 6 to 9 may once again at the end of history be a call to war as God's people assemble behind Jesus when the nations will be struck down. But between those times of long ago in the past and this time in the future, whenever that will be, we're to interpret these military terms with a new spiritual reality, I think using the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we read before. So it's in verse 6, it's in our gladness of God that we will conquer the world. And our sword is the word of God. Our enemies are those who walk in disobedience against God. But rather than go to war, we cleverly destroy arguments against God's wisdom. And we take thought, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. See, the goal of God's faithful people is worldwide conquest. But we do this not by going to war, but by proclaiming God's love for us that is shown in the birth, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We don't just proclaim the Christmas story, but we also proclaim the Easter story. We don't just accept the lies of the world, but rather we proclaim the truth of God's word. See, vengeance is for God alone. And so we don't wage war with a sword, but rather with both hands, we grab the word of God and with this we seek to conquer, to persuade, to win over the nations and the people. We wage war in this way until such time as Jesus returns and he will be the one who will execute vengeance, uh, his judgment. And this is the only way, we see in the end of Psalm 149, that there could be honour and glory for God's people. Exacting our own vengeance now will never bring God glory. But it does bring God glory when we proclaim his mighty word. It honours God when we tell of the wonderful saving gospel of Jesus Christ. For in doing this, God's righteous judgment will one day be executed on the nations upon all who reject God and they will receive the just, just punishment that sin deserves. Now, this may not be a particularly pleasant message to hear. It's not a pleasant message to preach and especially on the first Sunday of the year. And it's an unusual message, I think we have to be honest, to hear when the psalmist is actually praising God. But isn't it also a wonderful message of mercy and grace? See, God has delayed executing judgment upon all who fully deserve it. 
You know, he delayed it long enough for you and for me to hear the gospel, the good news, and to be saved. But how much longer will God delay Jesus' return? Now, I've been reflecting on whether this is a passage that really encourages us to be bold in proclaiming the gospel. And as I've been reading and praying through this psalm, this is where I keep ending up. See, we're called to praise God, rejoicing in our salvation, and we should long for the same for others. So we're called to praise God, rejoicing in our salvation, and we should long for the same for others. See, verses 6 to 9 only give two options. Either we're with Jesus and we'll be executing judgment over the nations on the last day, or we're part of the nations having judgment executed upon us. See, there's no middle ground. There's no fence to sit on. So if you're here today, or if you're watching online and you're and you're saved, if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, then Christian, rejoice. Praise the Lord. Praise God and be bold in sharing the good news of salvation with the nations. But if you haven't yet accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then I urge you today to take time to consider who Jesus is and why he is such good news. Now, why not join in the celebrations and sing with us a new song? See, friends, we have such an amazing God who in his grace has given us such an amazing King, his only beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Let's never cease to rejoice in God for who he is and his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. In all that we do, in all that we say, as we sing a new song, as the psalm finishes, let's praise the Lord. Let's take a moment now in quiet reflection. As the musicians come up, I'll then pray for us and then we'll stand to, to sing. Let's pray. Loving and gracious Father, we praise you for you are our maker and you have given us our King, Jesus Christ. We praise you as we begin 2021 for you have revealed yourself to us and for all who follow Jesus as Lord and Saviour, you have crowned us with salvation. May we never cease to praise you and may we praise you as one people united in Christ Jesus, joyfully praising your name to the nations who so desperately need to hear the good, good news. As we begin this year, may we continually have this in our minds for your glory and that of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.